Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, uh, your Halloween costume that you're wearing mm-hmm. for this podcast, mm-hmm. um, I noticed that your hair is really tall, uh-huh. and you have a really impressive white streak going down the side. Yes. Are you the bride of Frankenstein's monster? No. Oh. I'm Marge Simpson in her later years. Oh, well. Jeesh. Well, sorry, but it, it looks like the bride of Frankenstein, I'm uh, just saying. See, I never get my costumes right. What, yeah. what about you? What's what's going on over there? Well, as you can tell by my uh, by the burns on my body, uh, as well as the reek of burnt urine that surrounds me. <clears throat> I was going to say something about that. Yeah. Uh, I am, of course, an alchemist. Mm-hmm. Busy plying my trade in my laboratory, trying to discover the secrets of life to turn, uh, to transmute metals into gold and, uh, and turn mm-hmm. one type of animal into another. And urine into? Gold, of course. Yes. I'm totally about the gold. And urine is kind of gold looking, so there's got to be a way to turn it into gold. Yeah, right? no, I appreciate your commitment to the illusion, by yeah. the way. Uh, whew, this podcast, uh, room is really small and, enclosed. Well, and you know, I, I'm, pungent I'm, right now. I'm committed to the idea. Okay. So I go all the way. Been burning urine all night. So uh, both of these play into what we're going to talk about today, which is, of course, Frankenstein's monster. Or um, Frank's monster, as, as you like to call it. Yeah. Yeah. Or some people just call the monster Frankenstein, and and uh, that's technically incorrect. But it's uh, it's been used to such an extent. It's it's almost to the point where it's okay to call the Frankenstein's monster Frankenstein. Uh, well, and I think it's actually quite reasonable, given that it was this... this uh, creature made in Frankenstein's image, sort of, or in man's image. Yeah, yeah. And he never actually names it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the demon, the creature, and occasionally some more wordy descriptions that, because uh, it's, a, it's a rather poetic novel. The mm-hmm. uh, the original uh, the original book, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus by uh, Mary Shelley, 1818. It's never been out of print. And uh, if you haven't read it, I, if you've not read this book, I, I highly recommend you giving it a read. Uh, it can be a little wordy. Uh, at times, but it's it's just really great. Uh, the like Frankenstein, the the man is uh, uh, you know is very philosophical about everything, and he's putting a lot of thought into this. And the, and the monster is very intelligent as well, and, and, right. and engages in a lot of uh, a lot of deep ponderings about uh, his own life and his purpose, and, I mean, yeah, and, and yeah. what has happened to him, and all this misery that has has befallen him, and the state of mankind. I mean, it's a it's an intelligent novel well, in ways that the a... movies really rarely. Uh, are able to capture. Well, the movies are more like fire, fire, scared, right? Yeah. And, and this is more like, hey, let me tell you about my existential angst as a creature that was abandoned. Yeah, that was created by a man and by an imperfect man and abandoned on an imperfect world. Yeah. And over the past month, uh, I was asked by How Stuff Works to write an article, How Frankenstein's Monster Works. And I set out to write it. And, uh, you know, I could have just written a, a, a whole regurgitation of the normal, hey, there was this lady, Mary Shelley, and she got scared in a lightning storm and was in a story writing contest. And then she wrote this. And then these people played Frankenstein in the movie. And that's all well and good. All the, I mean, the, the story of the, the novel and the, and the, the pop culture significance of the, of the book and the idea is really cool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I can read it all day. And there are plenty of places on the internet already to read about it all day. But I was really more interested in, the idea of Frankenstein's monster in our culture is this idea that we can create life, that mm-hmm. we can we can take and not just create life in the way that humans create life every day through procreation, but the idea that I can use my wisdom and my intelligence and with one hand sort of flip off God 
And with the other one, make a little man that'll walk around and do what I tell it to. Well, and this idea, too, that we perhaps just haven't discovered the right element or the right thing or the right piece of knowledge to transcend our own humanness, right? Right. And to, to make a better version of ourselves. Yeah. And this uh, the idea, too, has been around forever. I mean, it I mean, it goes back to just our basic like cognitive abilities uh, to look at an object and imagine it alive. Mm-hmm. The idea to anthropomorphize things and to uh, and to personify even like aspects of nature. You know, you have like the Greek myth of Pygmalion, the sculpture that is awakened by the god Venus and turned into an actual lady. And uh, and you also have one of my favorite ideas, the golem. Or uh, and, yeah. and I found this interesting. It, it can also, since this is a, a Jewish idea, it can mm-hmm. be pronounced goylem, mm-hmm. um, um, which is, I guess, more in keeping with the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mo- the most uh, famous version of this was uh, the golem of of Prague, which is uh, it's a medieval myth, and it eventually found its way uh, into new life in the 1915 novel Dare Golem. In this particular story, you have this guy Rabbi Judah Lo Ben. Bezabel, mm-hmm. and he's an expert in the use of the magical use of letters to create various magical effects. And this, so, these are almost like incantations, right? I mean, right. you could say they were prayers. But, yeah, and, uh, and then it gets into this whole like there's a whole lot of stuff in uh, in Judaism and in mm-hmm. Kabbalah with the importance right. of the importance of names, the importance of letters, and the importance of the name of God and ritual. Right, and uh, and so I mean, you have things like the Sefer. Uh, Yezerah, the book of creation, uh, which is often referred to as a guide to magical usage by some Western European Jews in the Middle Ages. And, and some of the, the, the involve various directions for creating a golem, some of which involve taking the name of God mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, rearranging the letters and putting them on things and, and bringing them to life. But in the, uh, in most of the tellings of this particular story of the golem of Prague, Bezabel creates this clay humanoid. Because golem basically means clod of earth. Mm-hmm. And he activates it by placing, um, he, he writes the word ameth, meaning, uh, that's A-M-E-T-H, uh, meaning truth and reality, mm-hmm. on a shim tablet, and he places that under the thing's tongue. Then it comes to life. Then he starts using this golem to ring the bell at the synagogue. But the only thing is you have to take the tablet out of its mouth and turn it off, because all it knows how to do is ring bells, apparently. And he forgets to take it out. Of, of the creature's mouth. And mm-hmm. then it just runs wild one night, uh, presumably ringing everything in sight like it's a bell. He's harassing people. It's like cowbells are like getting around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, it's like when the Roomba escapes from the living room that you want to vacuum and you catch it in the bathroom eating the rug. That kind right, of thing. Right, right. Um, the rabbi has to hunt it down. And when he finally gets there, he pulls the little tablet out from under its tongue. And the word ameth, uh, A-M-A-T-H, which means, you know, life and all, uh, becomes the word meth, M-E-T-H, which means death, and the, go- and the golem falls into dust. Um, and then there are other tales as well. There's this one story of a rabbi by the name of Jaffe in uh, Prussia, and he um, he has a golem like, like the candles in the synagogue, mm-hmm. but the golem can't really tell what's a candle uh, and what a non-candle is. Like, it, it basically thinks everything is a candle, so it lights everything in sight on fire. Right. So it it's... The, the programming doesn't work all that well. And then uh, there were apparently some stories, too, where uh, there were some ethical debates on the use of golems, not only for the use of, you know, tasks and chores around the synagogue, but the use of golems for the purposes of, of making the required number for the minyan, which is the uh, the quorum of uh, 10 Jewish adults required for certain religious observations, which indeed <laughs> I would feel it would be like, all right, you needed 10 people to make this decision. And you're telling me three of them were made out of clay. Right. You have to right. call foul on that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since we know that the column doesn't, uh, really have the ability of speech, right? Right. That's what I thought was interesting about this is that 
the the it's predicated on this notion that only holy men could uh, create this golem, and yet uh, the golem was going to be completely imperfect in the shadow of man because the golem was not created by God. Right. Yeah. And I'm just as an aside too, I find it interesting that they are taking symbols, rearranging them to create artificial beings, which uh, has a nice parallel with modern programming and uh, and artificial intelligence. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, nice. Which we'll, which we'll get into a, a little later. I hadn't thought about that. But this ties in well with the, the idea of Frankenstein as the modern Prometheus. I mm-hmm. mean, that's right up front. That's the subtitle for the book. Yeah. Prometheus, of course, being the titan that retrieves the fire, uh, takes the fire from the gods and gives it to humans and is then punished by what being lashed to a stone so that uh, birds can come and yeah, eat his liver. Yeah, I think it's an eagle that comes and eats the liver and then unfortunately oh, the liver, the liver grows, back. grows back and then this is it's like Groundhog Day every day. The same thing happens. Just yeah, An uh, endless Groundhog Day of the liver. Right. Doomed uh, to have yeah. your liver eaten every but single he, but day. But he took something that was the gods, mm-hmm. the domain of the gods, the fire, and he gave it to man. And then now man has the ability to use this fire and build up his civilization with it. And with fire, of course, achieve great good, such as staying warm at night, and great evil, like burning cities to the ground. Right, right. And I think it's so interesting, too, that Greek mythology would would uh, focus on this because, really, I mean, this was such the, the turning point for man, right? The discovery of fire mm-hmm. and the power that it had and the sustenance that it had um, that, you know, they had to come up with this uh, myth about it that, that uh, celebrated it and then also said, ah, but with this comes great responsibility. Right. Right, which is a, another sort of theme that we see in Frankenstein. Yeah, and and of course you think of like the way fire changed everything and how it powered and destroyed. I mean the ability to to murder and create to uh, mm-hmm. to steal from T.S. Eliot. Uh and uh, and one can't help but be reminded of centuries and centuries, I mean thousands of years later, uh the importance of electricity as well. Which is suddenly yeah. this Promethean fire that comes to us through technological advancement mm-hmm. uh that has a uh, the, all these great abilities. I mean, electricity surrounds us today as the it's it's everywhere. It is part of our civilization. It's it's, it's hard for us to imagine our modern lives without it. Oh yeah, yeah. I can't I can't conceive of a life divorced from electricity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, so much of the technology that we enjoy today wouldn't even exist. But during Mary Shelley's time, uh, electricity had really captured the imagination of people, and yet it was quite feared because it wasn't truly understood. Right. It was a mysterious property, and, and I remember uh, seeing reading accounts too, where people were really judgmental about the idea of using them for electric chairs, because pretty early on, yeah. people were like. Like Edison was like, hey, this electricity is great. Watch me fry this elephant, you know, topsy, uh, th- things of that nature. And they were like, we could totally fry prisoners with this. And right. there were some people who were like, how can you take this holy gift of electricity? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, and, and use it for something horrible like that. You're really debasing this wonderful thing. Well, what's interesting about that, too, is that Edison was in competition. He had AC, right? And uh, was it Volta that had DC? The DC current. And so it was Edison who was going around saying, oh, don't fear my AC current. It's not as dangerous as the DC. And I believe they were using the DC current. I could have it switched around, but I believe they were using the DC current on prisoners. And that was sort of a scare tactic on his part to mm-hmm. be like, to, to say to companies, you should really adopt my my uh, uh, electrical currency rather than this other one. Right. Just as a side note. But, the, the, you know, in, in a previous podcast, we were talking about the way, you know, if you're shocked 
by uh, heaven forbid uh, coming into contact with a live wire, yeah. you fly away from the the outlet or the source of electricity because mm-hmm. your muscles are spasming. Well, this is exactly the response that uh, various uh, scientists of the day and Mary Shelley's day were looking into the effects of electricity yeah. on dead tissue. Yeah, and it actually became sort of a sideshow. Right. Really. Like, the, this frog's dead, but watch what happens when I stick a live wire to it. Right, right. Or this prisoner is dead. Look what happened. And the prisoner's decapitated, by the yeah. way. They were doing this at, uh, I think they were doing it at, like, science festivals, showing the public this ability to reanimate a corpse. Yeah, it's like, look, first we reanimate the frog legs, and then they become delicious all through electricity. Right, right. And so people were, of course, even more frightened, and they started to think that electricity had the ability to, to reanimate their yeah. loved ones. And they were totally weirded out because they were like, he's right, these frog legs are delicious. <laughs> and they can move. Ah. Um, so Mary Shelley actually knew all about this, by the way. Yeah. because the- It's referenced um, in the book of Victor Frankenstein, I mean, it's told like a lot of these older novels. It's one character talking about conversations with others. Mm-hmm. And Victor doesn't share the details of how he creates life because right. it's a horrible secret that's destroyed his life and, and led to the deaths of, of everyone he holds dear in life. So mm-hmm. he's not going to burden anyone else with the secret recipe. But he does mention in passing a, a few different influences, one of which are these studies into electricity. Yeah. And I mean, just so everybody knows, too, Marie Shelley's father was actually friends with the, the leading authorities of the day on electrical research. Mm-hmm. So this was, these were conversations that she was privy to. And also, I mean, she's 19 years old. It's so amazing that she had amassed this amount of knowledge and was able to put this together and this pastiche of, of, of a story of this monster. But there you go. I mean, there's the basis for this idea that we could bring back life. And in a moment... We're actually going to talk about homunculus. Oh, yes. We're going to get into alchemy, one of my favorites. Alchemy, uh, making a tiny little person and and what it has to do with cow guts, right? Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of tomorrow and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. All right, so we're back. Uh, alchemy. Uh, now, this is another. We're talking about the the influences that uh, Victor Frankenstein cites in the book, and uh, he he starts off really into alchemy and and studying the the writings of various alchemists. Then he gets into the the modern uh, sciences mm-hmm. and sort of goes off in that direction. So his eventual creation of the, this monster of this uh, artificial being is kind of a synthesis of of modern science and alchemical ideas. Right now, alchemy. If uh, you go back uh, 16th through 18th centuries, this is essentially a mix of early chemistry and occultism. Mm-hmm. So you're crossing empirical research with mystical philosophy, um, and it, it's kind of alchemy is kind of a big tent when you get when you really start analyzing it because there, on one hand, there are people interested in transmuting metals. Um, right. There, there are people who are just prospecting essentially yeah. for gold. So some people are citing more on the get rich quick kind of aspects mm-hmm. of alchemy. Some people are really more into the occultist or philosophical aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And some people are basically chemists in a day when there's not really there's no chemistry yet. Right. So if you are interested in chemical properties, alchemy is where you are. It's the only game in town for the most part, at least um, in much of the world. Uh, and, and certainly there's some actual scientific achievements that came out of this. Uh, I mentioned reeking of burning urine, which, which some yeah. of these, uh, 
these alchemists did mm-hmm. because uh, there was a great deal of interest in urine and uh, and the possibility of turning it into gold. And uh, 17th century German alchemist Hennig Brandt uh, distilled countless buckets of urine uh, in an attempt to turn turn it into gold. And um, as you might expect, this experiment failed to produce results, uh, but it did allow him to discover the element phosphorus. So uh, you, you have situations like that where even in alchemy, in this, uh, this study of chemistry, people were actually making real discoveries. Mm-hmm. And as you've pointed out before, without the aid of the scientific method, right? So right. it's, you know, which obviously would have ferreted out a lot of what was wrong with alchemy. But at the time, it was a great way to try to interrogate the physical world around you. Right. Of course, where does this get involved with, like, why alchemy and, and Victor Frankenstein? Uh, yeah. And a lot of this comes down to the idea of the homunculus or homunculi. And that's the plural. Yes. And this is a, an idea that's fascinated me for ages just because on one level it's so grotesque and steeped in medieval um, nonsense that, uh, you know, I can't help but just fall in love with it. So I, I was researching this, researching how to create a homunculus. And, uh, for I, yourself. Yes, for, for myself. Um, and, and not just in the old-fashioned way of just screwing up your compost heap until it comes alive. Right. Um, <laughs> Though that's also involved in this, uh, you know, the early idea that uh, when material rots, it turns into insect. Like that's a basic misunderstanding of how organic life works. Yeah. And so a lot of these alchemical ideas of how to create life stem from misunderstandings of how it works. And this idea that that we basically that it was within our reach, even in the Middle Ages, to understand it and control it. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the homunculus is basically basically comes down to I can grow a little person. Not just a, like an animal. I can not only make an animal because there are also yeah. alchemical um, recipes for, say, turning a headless cow into a swarm of bees, which I, I think I'm going to share that one on the blogs soon. But um, <laughs> but I, I was uh, but but the idea of the homunculus is is also that it is a a reasoning creature that you're making. Uh, it's not. It's maybe not quite a human, but it is. Like a little human, like a, well, a see, grotesque little humanoid. Right, a grotesque little humanoid, which I think is fascinating because I can kind of inhabit that perspective at that time to think like, okay, this would be possible. Maybe I can't make a full-grown human, but I can make it in miniature, you know, sort of like my sea monkeys over here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's lost, you know, in these false concepts of spontaneous generation, like we said, magical tomfoolery. Uh, but they're basically pondering the possibility of creating an artificial, quote, rational animal, unquote, through... Uh, learned manipulation of organic tissue. Okay, so what is that organic tissue? Because that's that's where it becomes a little cringeworthy. Okay, well, uh, I I have to read part of the recipe because, and this comes from the book of the cow, which is a uh, which uh, the what I guess this is French is the Libre Libre Vacai. I think it might be Latin. Latin. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it's the book of the cow because the cow factors prominently into these uh, these recipes, and and so I'm just going to read a little here. Uh, until Julie stops me. Uh, but it goes a little something like this. And, and this is from Mike Vanderluke's Abdominal Mixtures, the uh, uh, Libervaca in the uh, Medieval West, or the Dangers and Attractions of Natural Magic. He writes, in describing the recipe in the book, With the mixture of sperm and sunstone, the magician inseminates a cow or a ewe. He then carefully plugs up its vagina with the sunstone and smears its genitals with the blood of the animal that was not chosen for insemination. Then the cow or the ewe must be placed in a dark house in which the sun never shines. Its food must be mixed with the blood of other animals. While awaiting the moment of birth, the magician prepares a powder made of the ground sunstone, sulfur, magnet, and green tortilla, 
stirred with the sap of the white willow. The unformed substance to which the ewe or, or the cow gives birth must be placed in this powder, whereupon it will instantly grow a human skin. The newborn homunculus must be kept in a large glass or lead vessel for three days until it is very hungry. Then it is fed on its decapitated mother's blood for seven days until it has developed into a complete animal. Uh, it can henceforth be used to perform certain feats. Um, all right, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and stop yeah, there. Yeah, I, I, have a, say- I have a whole other paragraph of just... Because it gets down once you've created it, you like put it into this this other um, vat and you grow it a little more. Sure. And then you can you can kill it and like smear its guts on your shoes, and then you can walk on water. But the crazy thing is here is is uh, aside I think being the original recipe for haggis, it completely <laughs> reminds me of of uh, when we've talked about growing tissue before and scaffolding um, tissue. Right. I mean, the, um, that's not to say that, you know, this, this modern day technology is based on alchemy, but it's interesting that that idea is very similar to what we are now doing because we have the technology. Right. Yeah. All of this was based in the idea that humans could mimic and manipulate natural reproductive processes. I mean, especially they were really confident about insects. They were like, insects, pff, that's easy. I can, I can make bees all day. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and then the, the, the greater idea was that, yeah, we, we've kind of got this knack. We can make some homunculi and, and let them loose. Which, you know, again, today, hey, we can grow an ear from this tissue. We just mm-hmm. have to scaffold it and bake it for a while. Yeah. And in, in reading these just detailed, grotesque recipes for how to make a monkey lie, too, for some reason, I was reminded of various Cypress Hill songs where Be Real just basically raps about, like, how to grow, like, a detailed um, recipe for growing marijuana or for smoking it. Yes. And I was I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if there was a Cypress Hill song where they're just laying out how to make a homunculi? That would be. Or like the anarchist guide to homunculi. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. But, I mean, the other side of this, too, is that this represented like such a dangerous idea. And this was something that like people who were afraid, like it, it's very unlikely that too many people wasted their time trying to actually do this. Sure. But a lot of people probably wasted their time. Uh, freaking out about the idea that people were doing this. They were like, Oh my goodness, there are these alchemists and they're, they're, they're doing this. And they, and if this works, they have such power. They have, they have power over nature. They have power that rivals that of God all through their, their magic and their science and their art. Well, the book of Cal actually probably was the undoing of alchemy. If you think about it, because wasn't this the first cohesive effort to put all of this sort of science and occult, these recipes together yeah. and, and try to make sense of it? It's like, all right, we're alchemists. Uh, these are the things that we sort of believe in. And then people were like look at it and they're like wow we this is really what we've been doing yeah yeah, yeah like all taken all together this just really seems like it's not working yeah that being said the most learned of the day that's that was a hot tome to have on your bookshelf yeah. right and, and also it was uh it, some people thought it was absolutely putrid and uh abomination against nature to even be talking about this. yeah it was good reading in other words yeah yeah, other yeah. Words, yeah yeah but of course alchemy would eventually see its day uh chemistry would rise even though and some critics actually uh, argue that alchemy prevented chemistry from really get going for a long time because mm-hmm. it was such a, I mean, it was also a kind of a taboo area, you know? Right. But eventually alchemy dies off. And uh, there's another area uh, where we really see this idea of, of mimicking the human form, creating the human body. And that is in the, uh, the field of robotics, specifically in the field yeah. of the creation of automatons, which of course are like, you know, mechanical men uh, that they're not really robots. They don't actually, uh, 
take in sense data and uh, and then then process the sense data and then make a decision about what action they're going to take. There's right, no computation. Right. But they're like wind-up men, wind-up ladies, dolls that dance. But we've discussed the pooping duck, of course. Well, as I was say, yeah. some of them mimic actual human biology. And again, here we have this uh, idea of, of trying to clone the human experience, whether, you know, it's artificially or um, physically. Mm-hmm. Um, in these, And we've talked about the pooping duck quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, Vacasson, Jacques Vacasson is yeah. actually the French engineer from the uh, 17th century, 18th century. He yeah, started to dream this up. Yeah, and he was he was fascinated, according to some historians, uh, because he was fascinated with digestion and defecation, uh, possibly because he had rather troubled bowels himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then automatons also date back to the days like Leonardo da Vinci, or even right. even further back in, into the past. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was, of course, fascinated with biomechanics. How does the body move? How mm-hmm. do muscles work? And so uh, he had plans for this and apparently even built this mechanical knight that yeah. – uh, that while, you know, don't get too excited, it probably was not walking around doing chores around the house, but on some level mimicked the movements of the human body. You know, he was he was fascinating. It's like this is how the the mechanics of the body work. Right. Can this I is... reproduce these uh, with wood and string? And, right. And uh, and hinges. It was a vast pulley system. And I, I believe that he would have dinner parties and roll out the, the robotic yeah. night as sort he of was, like he a, was a fun guy, you know, cocktail uh, thing to chat about. That never survived. Is that correct? Is that. Is that the instance in which the church uh, decided that it was an ad- abomination as well? And, and uh, the church was a lot of people would get kind of freaked out about mm-hmm. uh, automatons and we destroy them. Yeah, Albertus Magnus uh, supposedly had some sort of a well, they call it an android in some cases, but mm-hmm. you know some sort of uh, artificial man and and uh, you know his his own pupil freaked out about that and destroyed it uh, according to again according to stories. But yeah, the idea here is that that people were looking at humans, looking at them as machines, and then trying to replicate a machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and out of this, a really interesting idea emerges. A real, a, a just one of the big, uh, you know, existential ponderings, and, and part of part of the the horror of the Frankenstein story, both in uh, in the original novel and in our modern uh, interaction with it. And that is, if a machine can mimic the human body, then is the human body nothing more than a biochemical machine? If I can make it, mm-hmm. then what does that say about me? Like if I'm if, if Frankenstein makes this monster, this human monster, mm-hmm. why is it a monster? Does you know it does it have a soul? Is it am I equal to it? If it is something special, then am I less? Well, there's that special? the problem of consciousness, yeah. right? Yeah, you get into like um, you know I think therefore I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, French philosopher Rene Descartes uh, viewed nature as primarily mechanical, but he avoided the messier existential complications by describing the human soul as an independent force. Descartes' critic uh, Gilbert Ryle would uh, later describe as the ghost in the machine. Mm-hmm. The idea that, yeah, our bodies are machines, but our, our soul, that's something different. That's something separate. And that ties right into the cognitive blindness that we all have. The brain cannot perceive itself. We exist in our own blind spot, right? Well, and, and still, we are trying to find that blind spot. You know, So scoot forward to today when we have the Blue Brain Project, and we've talked about this before. But that's the attempt to reverse engineer the brain by building a detailed, realistic computer model of the human brain and its 100 trillion synapses. Uh, more specifically, modeling components of the mammalian brain in uh, precise cellular detail and simulating neuronal activity in 3D. So the person that is doing this is is actually sort of wondering if, if once he's able to successfully 
reverse engineer the human brain, if we'll be able to see that that seat of consciousness, this bubble, this of perception that we see everything through, could we map it? Could we point to it? Um, does that change our understanding of our humanness? Uh, but to me, it also brings into question the, the same question that Mary Shelley was um, exploring is what happens when you do create this version of yourself that uh, assuming, you know, you, you can reverse engineer your own brain and then you um, could map it to a p- computer program that has, uh, say, an emotional database, your mm-hmm. own an emotional database uh, that sort of corresponds with it let's say with questionnaires that you filled out. Okay. So now this brain could operate on its own and essentially be you just, you know, in this database, what, what happens with that? What's, what sort of responsibility do we have for creating a version of ourselves that might actually have a a seat of consciousness? Yeah. Does it have, we don't know, but yeah. Yeah. Does it have rights? Does it get to be a citizen? I mean, you get into all this weird, which is something else to encounter with the, with the contemplation of AIs. Yes. at, At what point does, I mean, is an artificial intelligence on par with human intelligence? I mean, you get into the whole idea of the technological singularity and the idea that that a computer intelligence would even uh, supersede the, the human intelligence mm-hmm. and, and and exceed our, our capabilities. Uh, and, and this isn't too crazy of a conversation, considering that we've talked to you know Dr. Ronald Arkin over at Georgia Tech about the the ability to try to create nuanced emotions in a machine, which is what they're trying to teach. It's very rudimentary right now, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, a computer model or a machine might begin to react in the ways that we do. And yeah. if that's the case, uh, I don't know, is it weird? Do you have this version of yourself out there that you abandon that you just get tired of, of looking at your own brain that you've created? Yeah, I mean, and elsewhere in the sciences, too. I mean, we're creating synthetic ba- bacteria in the lab. We're, we've are we continued to break apart DNA and map uh, map the genomes of various species. Mm-hmm. We, um, I mean, and then as far as physics go, I mean, we're colliding particles. We're trying to unlock right. uh, the mystery of the universe itself, why gravity exists. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot of potential in these to, if not create an actual Frankenstein's monster, but to create the Frankenstein's monster as the, I mean, the idea of the Frankenstein's monster, create something that really forces us to reevaluate who and what we are and what's, and where we have, where we have risen to with science and then how, uh, how the, the change in scientific illumination, um, you know, how it changes our own, our understanding of ourselves. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so interesting that Dr. Arkin uh, focuses on ethics so much um, in terms of robotics mm-hmm. and, and what it means 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Back to just the idea of the like the horror movie idea of the, the monster itself. What's, what's your favorite uh, film adaptation of Frankenstein? Well, I really like the one with Robert De Niro in it simply <laughs> because, well, for two reasons, one good and one bad. Uh, the good reason is that I think that it's pretty um faithful to the actual text and yeah. that it you know you've got a frankenstein monster that is uh, very intelligent um has very deep thoughts and is trying to express those on the other hand you've got robert de niro a fine actor wonderful uh-huh. but i don't know about de niro as frankenstein because he's got a little bit of a new york accent <laughs> trying to say well, why did this happen to me that didn't yeah. sound like the sound and, and like Schwarzenegger again. And there's no way they could have been using New York parts because they're having to import most of that. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It would, so, it would be made out of like Cockney parts. Yes. I'm, I'm conflicted about that. Yeah. And I'm not uh, I'm not saying that De Niro isn't a wonderful actor. He is. But just or not. Or has been. I don't know if he is anymore. But, I, I'm just saying Frankenstein probably wasn't his uh, greatest <laughs> role of his life. You? 
You? Uh, I actually have a real, I haven't seen this one in years, but I remember there was a, a TV movie, uh, where he had, um, uh, Patrick Bergen, I believe. Uh, is his name as um, as as Victor, and then Randy Quaid played the monster. Oh, yeah, and it was. Is it a comedy? No, 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 no. Randy was playing it straight. I mean, Randy right. was slash is a very talented actor um, who is just mainly remembered for his uh, his more comedic roles. Right, but uh, but yeah, he, I remember him as, as being really good as the monster. It was a pretty like like uh, the uh, the version you're talking about with Kenneth Branagh. It was it was pretty accurate. I mean, it was pretty faithful to the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, began and ended in the Arctic. And uh, I remember just being really captivated by it when I watched it as a kid. All right. I would, I would be uh, very interested to know what your favorite adaptation is. Yeah, yeah. Let, let us Do you know. like the Port Karloff, the Fire Fire one? Because, I mean, there's merits with that one, too. Yeah. Or, or are you more of a hammer man? Do you prefer maybe like uh, the, the monster from Frankenstein and the monster from hell, which looks like the big, like, hairy gorilla man with stitches on its head? I, I mean, there are just so many cool... Cool variations that have popped up over the years. All right. Well, um, Matt is telling us we have to stop. I, I had more to share. I had so much more to tell you about uh, alchemy, but uh, but when Matt speaks, but we're being shut down. We I'm listen. Sorry. You'll have to write in and complain about it. Uh, if you want to share non-complaints with us, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Below the Mind on both of those. And you can always find us at Below the Mind at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.